All right, we are in, if you have your notebook, tab number two, the second section of our class, how to get the most out of your Bible. And that second section is on understanding the Bible, that is, how to interpret the Bible. Completed the first tab, which is the bulk of the class, and that is survey of the Bible. Now how to understand the Bible. We may finish that tonight. And then uh, we will have the remainder of our time in the third tab on how to apply the Bible. But we left off on page 5 of tab 2. And that just has one sentence up at the top and then the box. So we have looked at four principles on how to interpret uh, the Bible as we try to put a passage that we're considering in its context. Remember I said that uh, that uh, context determines meaning, and we've seen in the paperwork that you have in front of you that there are three contexts that you need to consider. There's a historical context, the literary context, and the grammatical context. And each of those three gives rise to a principle of interpretation. Historical context gives the principle that a text cannot mean what it never meant. It can't mean something today that it never meant when it was first written. And then the literary context gives rise to the principle that all texts are not alike. The Bible has different kinds of books, and the type of book that is under consideration needs to be taken into account as you interpret it. And then the grammatical context gives rise to the principle that a text has only one meaning. A word only means one thing in this particular context. And that sentence only means one thing then in that particular paragraph. And the paragraph within the uh, the chapter and the book and, and so on. But then there's a fourth and final principle. And that's why we are on page five. Uh, and this comes out of the fact that the Bible has not only the human authors who penned and wrote the books of the Bible, but ultimately you have one author, that is God, overseeing the whole process. So each book has two persons, at least two persons, involved in it. You have God, you have the the human human author. Uh, And if you didn't have that, if you didn't have God overseeing the process, and you had 66 books and 40 different authors over a 1,600-year period, as is the case with the Bible, then it would be hopelessly contradictory. There would be no way, it would be impossible, to have 40 different authors from different backgrounds, different time periods, agree with one another. But because ultimately it has one author, then this final principle uh, comes into play, and that is the Bible communicates a unified message. And we left off last week with the example of uh, eternal security and the Bible's teaching on the fact that if someone comes to Christ and has a relationship with him, if they're a Christian, if they're born again, then they uh, will be forever. They're eternally secure in that relationship. But there are some passages that appear to teach, at least at first blush, something different. But given this principle, since God is the ultimate author, ultimately the Bible has one author, unless God can contradict himself then those passages can and must be harmonized. So we should do the work of harmonizing passages that apparently, uh, at first blush, look like they are are different. And so we looked at that with regard to the issue of eternal security. 
I'll just give you a couple of more issues, and then we'll and then we'll move on. But uh, I am personally, I am a dispensationalist, uh, and so what that means is uh, that I believe that the Bible teaches that God has pursued His glory, and it, in different ways at different times, that He has ordered His house. That's what dispensation means: house order. Uh, comes from a Greek word that means that. He has ordered his house, the world, different ways at different times. And so you have the garden and Adam and Eve, and that's God ordering his world in a different way at that time than we have now. And you have the law that God gave to Moses and all of the regulations and the ceremonies and the civil penalties and all of that. That's different than, than what we have now. So... Uh, that would be another dispensation called the law. And then you have where we are now, uh, after Christ has come and established his church and made the church the chief vehicle through which God is achieving his glory. So it's sometimes called the age of the dispensation of the church, sometimes called the dispensation of grace, but it's it's another unique uh, epic in, in history. And then in the future, you're going to have the, the kingdom. And the kingdom is going to be unique as, as well. So you have at least those four. Now, there are others. Uh, traditionally, dispensationalism has another three. Uh, but but I don't even need to get into that. You've at least got those four that are pretty clear. You've got the, you've got the garden. You've got the law. You've got the church. And you've got, you've got the kingdom. Now, why do I bring all that up? Here's why. As it relates to this unified message thing. Now, even though I am a dispensationalist, uh, personally, one of the mistakes that dispensationalists made early on uh, as that uh, way of viewing the Bible was being systematized, it, it's, uh, it's, it's been a way of looking at the Bible for 2,000 years, uh, but it was systematized uh, in the 1800s, particularly by a guy named John Nelson Darby, and then popularized by a guy named C.I. Schofield. And uh, Schofield's Study Bible, any of you guys familiar with that, Schofield's Study Bible? That was the most popular study Bible in the world for a very long time. And Schofield had some footnotes in his study Bible as a dispensationalist that suggested, forget suggested, he out now said that uh, in, under the law that people were saved by keeping the law. And now in the New Testament, in the age of grace, they're saved by believing in, believing in Christ. Well, that would, be, that would be contradictory. That would be a problem. And uh, it, would be, it would be a problem because uh, in order for there ever to be an era in which people were related to God by what they did, then that would require a change in the character of God and a change in the character of humanity. Because God would have to settle for a lesser standard. And that would require a change in his character. And humanity would have to be able to meet the standard, which would require a change in our character. And so it's wrong for a number of reasons. And, it, and, and as a result, many dispensationalists taught a kind of disunified uh, message in the Bible. And so we've got to be careful about that, even from otherwise good, good things. Uh, so in 1965, a guy named Charles Ryrie, whose study Bible I recommended to you, the Ryrie Study Bible. He's a dispensationist. He wrote a book 
uh, called Dispensationalism Today. And now that book is just called Dispensationalism. But then it was called, same book, but it was called Dispensationalism Today. And the today part was really important because he was trying trying to distinguish what he was saying from what those guys had said. He was aware of the mistakes that a Schofield and others had made, and he was trying to, uh, and did, did a very good job of clarifying and uh, straightening out some of that. So uh, the issue of eternal security versus can you lose your salvation is an area where people fail to see a unified message. Sometimes dispensationalists have failed to see a unified uh, message. And then one final example, and that is the issue of whether or not uh, we are saved Uh, by uh, faith alone or are we saved by faith plus works and that comes to that comes to the fore because there are passages just like with the eternal security issue that appear to teach that works are necessary for salvation so let me uh, point out two chief passages that appear to teach contradictory things and see how those can and should be unified Romans 4 Romans chapter 4 And I'm going to read for you Romans chapter 4 in just a moment. But just before Romans 4, at the end of chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, and verse 28, Romans 3.28, it says, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So by faith, not the law. Uh, And apart from, as a matter of fact, observing the law. Then you go into chapter 4 and an illustration from the life of Abraham from the first part of the Bible is given to prove that we are justified, that we're given a relationship with God not by what we do, but by what we by believing. So verse 1 of chapter 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? And then there's a quote in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's a quote from the first part of your Bible, Genesis 15 and verse 6. So in the narrative of the life of Abraham, the Bible tells us that Abraham believed God. Now, Abraham was before the law. So uh, the, the means by which... God has justified, it doesn't require the law, uh, and it wasn't the law with, uh, with Abraham. And then uh, Paul, who wrote Romans, goes on to say, verse 4, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, now get this, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. God justifies the wicked. So it's people who, not by their works, recommend themselves to God. They're wicked. They're sinful. But they believe in the one who is sinless. And then that, his righteousness, is credited to to the wicked. And so their faith is credited as righteousness. Verse 6, David says the same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So Paul here makes a, a very clear case that it's apart from the law, but it's not just apart from the law, it's apart from works. Because in chapter 3 and verse 28, we maintain that we are justified by faith apart from the law, apart from the law of Moses. But then in chapter 4, he's not using the word law. He's using an illustration from Abraham who was before the law. He's just using a more generic term, works. So you can try to say, says Paul, that you need to keep the law, and he refutes that. And not only do you not need to keep the law in order to be justified, uh, there is no work that justifies us. All right, everybody clear on that? That's what he says. That's Romans 3 and 4. But then you come to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And James in verse 14, James 2.14 says, asks, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So in the King James, it says faith apart from works is dead. So here you got Paul just you know taking pains to say, you're justified apart from the law and apart from works, and you're justified even though you're wicked and all that. And here James comes and blows all that up by saying, hey, faith without Faith without works is dead. And yet, the Bible communicates a unified message. So before I talk about how you harmonize those, I just want to stop here to say, when you read the Bible, if you're convinced of this fourth principle on page 5, which I encourage you to be convinced of, the Bible communicates a unified message because it ultimately has one author. And God is not schizophrenic. God has one message that he's communicating. He doesn't contradict himself. And so if you believe that, then when you see these passages, then do the work of of harmonizing the passages. How can these be interpreted rightly, but be interpreted in a way that's consistent with one another? And the key to James chapter 2 is back in verse 14. And at the end of verse 14, where he asks the question, it doesn't say, can faith save him? If it said that, then it would be that would be that would be a problem. Again, verse fourteen: What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can faith save him? If it said that, can faith save him? Well, then that would be a problem because Paul's already said yeah <laughs> to that. But he doesn't say can faith save him. He says can such faith save him? Or some translations say can that? Faith, save. Now, why is that that word "such" or "that" so important? Can that faith? Can such faith save? Because James says this because he's seeking to answer a different question than Paul was answering. Paul was answering this question: How is someone justified before God? And his answer is very clearly by faith alone, apart from works. How is someone justified before God by faith alone apart from works? That was the question he was answering. James is answering a different question. 
Not how is someone justified. He believes the same thing Paul does, by faith alone, apart from works. He's answering the question, what kind of faith justifies you before God? What kind of faith? It's still faith, but what kind of faith? And it's such faith that issues forth in good deeds. You're not justified by doing the good deeds. You do the good deeds because you're justified. So you're justified the same way. You're justified by faith alone. But as Martin Luther said, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. That is, we believe, and we believe in the work of Christ, person and work of Christ. And we are justified, and we are regenerated. We are changed from the inside out. But that change from the inside out comes out. That is, in good works, in in deeds. And so the Bible has much to say about the necessity of good deeds as evidence of the fact that you have genuine faith, genuine saving faith. So what kind of faith justifies someone? It's the kind of faith that shows up in what you do. So if someone then says, hey, I'm saved, but there's no evidence, there's no proof of that, in the love of the brethren, to help someone who is in need, or in 1 John, you know, 1 John is giving evidences of whether or not you have eternal life. And those evidences include believing the right things, but also in doing the right things. And loving the brethren. He's got those three tests, doctrinal tests, moral tests, and social tests in, in 1 John. So those can be harmonized quite quite easily, but at first you read James and you go, yikes, he believes that it's faith and works that justifies. Uh, But in fact, he believes it's faith alone, just not a faith that remains alone. So you'll see that kind of thing rear its head as you go through the Bible, but if you believe it teaches a unified message. Uh, I've been doing this a long time, reading reading through the Bible, finding things here, and then harmonizing with what's over there, and they can always be harmonized. But if you don't believe that ultimately there's one author behind this, then you could easily make a superficial assumption, wow, those two guys just don't agree with each other. The Bible just contradicts itself. But the Bible never contradicts itself. All right. Now if you'll turn to page 6. And we're going to try to put into practice what we've been looking at the last few weeks about how to interpret the Bible top of page six we have seen that one must consider historical literary and grammatical factors in order to properly interpret communication since the last book of the bible was written nearly 2,000 years ago effort must be expended in order to place a passage of scripture in context and thereby achieve the goal of all bible study which we've already seen is to understand the author's intended meaning So it's not enough for one simply to know the rules and principles of interpretation. We've looked at those. Rather, these are given so they might be put to use. God gave his revelation to us so that we might know his will and do it. To that end, this lesson is devoted to the practice of biblical interpretation. The rules and principles are going to be applied to a chosen passage of Scripture to illustrate how the Bible is to be interpreted. The passage is 1 Corinthians 14, 18, and 19. It says this. 
in the middle of page, it's there for you in the middle of page six. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So I've chosen those two verses to illustrate this because they are about a topic that people disagree on. So rather than just choosing something easy, <laughs> chose that. Now, I still think it's relatively easy, and we'll see if you agree when we, when we go through this once you apply the rules of interpretation. But nonetheless, it's something about which people disagree. So we're going to try to apply what we've looked at to that particular passage. This lesson is going to show that in order to determine the author's intended meaning of these verses, we need to study the words, the sentences, the paragraph, the book, and then the, the correlation of the, of the passage. So, the idea there is to have these concentric uh, circles. You know, the smallest unit of uh, interpretation is a word. So, um, so, you got word, but a word doesn't have meaning on its own. Remember I was saying last week that a dictionary doesn't assign meaning? That words have meaning in a, in a context. And in fact, the meaning of a, the same word might be different in a different context. That's why in the entry in a dictionary, you're going to have two or three or five possible definitions, right? So what that word means depends on the, on the sentence in which it's contained. So you've got the word, but the word's contained in the sentence. But what's the sentence contained? <coughs> the sentence is contained in a paragraph. And in fact, these two sentences are one paragraph in the in 1 Corinthians 14. So I've chosen a paragraph, a short one, but a paragraph for us to look at. So you've got, what does that word mean? We're going to look at what the words of this thing mean in the sentences that are there in the context of the paragraph that the sentences are contained in, but of course the paragraph's contained in the book of 1 Corinthians. So that's the next circle, is the book. But then that book, 1 Corinthians, is part of the whole Bible. So your outer circle, that everything is, a context, is in the context of, is the teaching of the whole Bible on the particular issue. So you have the Bible. And that's your last that's your last circle. Is the, the Bible. And I could draw a circle around that, but I'm not going to. So you've got these five things word, sentence, paragraph, book, Bible, like we've got for you on page six. But the words in the sentence, sentence in the paragraph, paragraph in the in the book, and then the book within the Bible. We want to see how that is done now, looking at this particular passage. So we start with the words. And I say here on page 6, then, study the words of the passage. So I recommend for you, then, to choose words to study. Now, what kind of words should you choose in a paragraph that you want to know what it means? Well, choose words that are key. Key words in the passage that you're considering. And I say here what a keyword is. Keywords are those that indicate the topic. 
The passage at hand has to do with the topic of tongues. Therefore, it would be helpful to know something about that word. So I think we would all agree in those two sentences, the word tongue is a key word. So I want to know what it means. So let's choose that to try to figure it out. And then also, not just keywords, but bottom of page six, unfamiliar words. If one is using an up-to-date translation, like the NIV, the occurrence of unfamiliar words will be rare. In our passage, the, if you're using the King James, unfamiliar words will be legion. Okay? You know, so... Um, uh, you know, in James chapter 1... Uh, the King James says uh, superfluity of naughtiness. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it uses words like lasciviousness. So you'll find all kinds of things like that. that you're just going to have to go if you're going. But if you use a up-to-date translation, you won't have as many. But even in our passage here, the author prefers that his readers speak words that are intelligible. He uses the word intelligible. If that word's unfamiliar it'll be necessary to determine its meaning. So you define words then in the passage. Having chosen these key words and these unfamiliar words, then let's see what the range of meaning for these words can be. Now remember, the, the particular meaning is going to be determined by the context, but at least we can see what the range of possible meaning is for them. So define the key words and define the unfamiliar words. Page 7. Defining the keywords, you can consult a dictionary. But as we said, that's only going to give you uh, possible meanings. Most often when we want to know the definition of a word, we look in the dictionary. However, a dictionary definition offers several possible meanings for a word. It's necessary to determine which, if any, is appropriate in this context. A Bible student must also realize that a dictionary offers the range of possible meanings based on the word's usage in contemporary communication. Because of that, a standard dictionary may not always help with biblical words. Now again, if you're using an up-to-date translation, a, a regular dictionary will, will help because you've got a dictionary that's written, that's a contemporary dictionary with a contemporary translation. But still, you've got Bible words. And so there are things called Bible dictionaries. And that's what uh, the second step is there. Consult a Bible dictionary. A Bible dictionary is defined, designed to define words according to their use in the Bible. A given word may have several different usages throughout the Bible. However, because language is univocal, that is, a word has only one meaning in a given context. We saw that last week. Therefore, one must choose the definition most appropriate to the text at hand. Now, here's an example. We've chosen to define the key word tongue. A Bible dictionary lists two primary uses of tongue in the Bible. The word is used literally of the physical organ of the mouth, your tongue in your mouth. It's used that way in the Bible. So, James chapter 3. You know, when it talks about the tongue, verses 1 through 12, I preached on that for a couple of weeks recently. And that's about the, the tongue, the physical organ in the mouth. But it's also used of spoken languages or dialects. So sometimes in the Bible when the word tongue is used, it's not talking about your tongue in your mouth, it's talking about the language you speak. So which definition fits our context? Well, notice the author writes regarding speaking in tongues rather than speaking with tongues. 
So he's not speaking with your tongue. He's saying you're speaking in tongues, indicating a language or a dialect. So the author, in our passage, as we take that keyword tongue, what's a, what's tongue in this context? It's a it's a language or a or a dialect. All right. So that's that's that key word. But then define unfamiliar words. And we chose the word intelligible that may or may not be unfamiliar. So consult a dictionary. Again, that will provide a definition of the word as it's used today. But then a Bible dictionary. The major advantage of a Bible dictionary is that it defines a word according to the way it's used in the Bible itself. But one disadvantage is that Bible dictionaries are generally arranged by topics or subjects. And as such, they do not provide an exhaustive list of every word used in the Bible. So if you get a Bible dictionary, then it won't define every single word that's used in the Bible. And it turns out the word intelligible does not appear in most Bible dictionaries. In those cases, the student can survey on your own the Bible's use by looking up the references that contain it. Now, how would I know that? How would I find that? With a concordance. And a concordance is the tool that provides that kind of list. So the third thing you can do is consult a Bible concordance. And a concordance lists references to a given word in the Bible. Now that list in that concordance may or may not be complete depending on whether or not it's an exhaustive concordance. Now some of your Bibles have brief concordances in the back. Like my Bible here in the back has a concordance and it's got a number of words and then under the word, it's got passages where that word is used. And the idea there is, if you can't think of a passage, you know, you're trying to think of a verse, but you don't know the ver- you don't know where it is, but you remember a word or two. You could look in the concordance and then hopefully find the verse that you're thinking of. Is, is kind of the idea. But you know, it's just several pages at the back of this Bible. It's not an exhaustive concordance. So an exhaustive concordance is a big thick thing. Now, the good news is, if, that's if you get the printed one. The good news is we live in an online age, and so you can look these up, all this stuff online and for free as well. But you would look up the word in a concordance, and it would list for you the passages where it's used, middle of that paragraph. Once the desired word's been located, you can look up the references in order to find the word's usage elsewhere in the Bible. Now get this, use of a concordance for our word intelligible reveals that it's used again in the very same chapter we're considering. It's used earlier in 1 Corinthians 14. Here it is. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, by the way, notice how the tongue's being used there, with your tongue. Intelligible words with your the organ in your mouth how will anyone know what you are saying? So intelligible, that, that line defines what intelligible means for you, doesn't it? Because it's saying intelligible are words where people know what you're saying. Otherwise, if you don't speak those kinds of words, people won't know what you're saying. So intelligible words refer to those that allow the listener to, quote, know what you're saying. Intelligible words are those that can be understood. Right? So notice, we're just all we're doing is just looking at the passage. We're just looking at what the, the words say in context. 
what are the possible range of meanings for these, these words, and then we'll spread the context out to the sentence and the paragraphs. But so far, you've got the word tongue, and tongue here in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, and 19 means a language. And intelligible means understood, understandable. All right, then moving from the words, move to the sentences. And study the structure of the sentences themselves. All sentences are composed of parts of speech that are designed to give each word a function in the sentence. Nouns describe persons, places, or things. Verbs describe action or being, and so on. Now, if you have forgotten grammar and you feel like right now you're having flashbacks to fourth grade then uh, if you have to sing conjunction junction to yourself you know what I'm talking about schoolhouse rock grammar rock you don't conjunction junction what's your function <laughs> oh this, those are great man and they, those things have come back out you can buy those those were Saturday morning cartoons but they were teaching kids grammar, and they were called Schoolhouse Rock or Grammar Rocky. What? You can YouTube them. You can YouTube. All right. So you guys are gonna have to YouTube Grammar Rock, Schoolhouse Rock. Just look. Just look up Conjunction Junction. That's one of the more famous ones. Uh, so, and it's telling you how and and but and so on fit together. These are conjunctions, okay, and other parts of speech. All right. But if you don't want to Google that, fine. But think we would all agree, I know we would all agree, that words have a function within the sentence. And that's what we're saying here when we talk about the structure of the sentence. Even, we say here, seemingly insignificant words, such as the word to, perform a function. For example, the author of our passage says this, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. In this context, the word to indicates the author's reason for preferring words that are understandable so that others may be instructed. You see what he says there? I'd rather speak words that people understand to for the purpose of instructing others. So study the structure of the sentences. You know, what's it saying? What's the topic? It's tongues. What kind of tongues? Intelligible languages. And what's it saying about why we care about intelligible languages? Well, the word little word to tells you here's the reason for the purpose of instructing others. So you study the structure and then the relationship of the sentences to each other. We've only got two verses we're looking at that are comprised of only two sentences. But we want to see how those two sentences fit together. So, the relationship of sentences to each other is indicated by the use of words which communicate that relationship. For example, in our passage, the author began the second sentence with the word but to indicate a contrast with the first sentence. Here's the, here's the two lines again. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Since the word tongue, we've already seen, means language, and since the author prefers understandable words, the text means that, though he has the ability to speak in languages that some might not understand, in the church, but in the church, 
the purpose of speech is to instruct others. So I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I'm only going to speak in languages that instruct others. And what kinds of languages instruct others? He's already told us. Those that they understand. If they don't understand them, they're not instructing. And if I'm not instructing, I'm not saying. That's what he's saying. So the following is a helpful example, just to remind you, because it's been a long time since fourth grade. Top of page nine. You know, here are some of these common connecting kinds of words that we use and what they normally function to do. The word but normally uh, makes a contrast. There's this, but, in contrast, there's this. Now, you notice we're going through this and the language is kind of, you're trying to be precise. What's, what are the words? How do they fit together? It's a bit of a pain. But God gave us the ability to speak. So we ought to practice speaking accurately and reading accurately. This is a gift from God. And I, uh, I'm troubled a bit by how flippant sometimes we are with the way we speak. <clears throat> Uh, and and you know some people some people just haven't been taught well, so you don't want to be snobbish about that. And I don't mean to be that, but we're people of the book, and God wrote a book in propositions in words. So it's important for us to put those words together and to do the work we're we're doing here. I had a guy years ago at our parent church, and he would go on. He would be talking. And and then he would stop, and then I would say something, or somebody else would say something. And then he would say, start again, but he would start again with but. Well, as soon as I hear someone say but after someone else has talked, I take that to mean you're giving an alternative to what they're saying. So we've got a disagreement here, which is okay, depending on how we handle it. But... He always said, but. He said it a lot. And it wasn't for years, till years later, that I said, wait a minute, you just said, but, and then you gave, said the same thing we just said. And it turns out, but just means, and another thing to him. And another thing. Where was he from? <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> it just means and another thing. And I'm telling you, it can be a real occupational hazard for you. If you're someone who dabbles in words for a living, when you listen to people talk, for me, when I listen to people, I'm listening to the words you say. And the words you say matter to me. I assume you're saying them because you're using them to communicate to me. And so I'm taking seriously what you say and I'm listening. And I have found out in that instance, in other instances, one more and I'll move on. But another guy at our parent church, and I had like a two-hour conversation with this guy. 
on the phone. Long, obviously, two-hour conversation. And he's saying stuff, and I'm going, I'm just listening, and the words he's saying, I can't believe. And I say, how can you say that? And then, about an hour and a half into it, he says this to me. Oh, Kenny, that's just the way I talk. <laughs> that's just the way I talk. I don't mean that. That's just the way I talk. Right. If I so Julie says now he tells me exactly an hour and a half into it. Now I don't mean that, it's just the way I talk. It's stuck with me for years. If I can't know what you mean by what you say, then how can I know what you mean? Now some people gets tricky. Some people can um, some people emote more than others. And so and they are more emotionally intelligent, emotionally sensitive to what people mean beyond what they say. I'm not one of those people. I'm not. It's just not my our whole leadership team is taking personality tests. We are. We did it three years ago, we got some new deacons, we got the wives taking them. So that we all know how each other are different and how we tick. And I am like I'm I have almost nothing on the knowing what you mean by your feelings. I know for me, I know what you mean and I process what you mean by what you say. Now I'm not saying that that's better because they're just those are just personality things. It does help when you're interpreting a book because the book doesn't emote. The book doesn't have a facial expression. The book just has words. But when you do that for a living, now you're listening to what people say and you're encountering lots of people who don't communicate what they mean by what they say. So I'm just warning you, it gets it does get tricky. But if you're going to interpret the Bible, the Bible's not going to give you a tear. The Bible's not going to give you a facial expression, gestures. It's giving you words and structures and grammar, and God chose to do it that way. So we delve into, all right, but is a contrast. Just as makes a comparison. The words because and for give a reason. Therefore, then, a result, and so on. So we study the words, the sentences, and then the paragraphs that contain those sentences. In studying the paragraphs, first define the content of a paragraph. So you want to select a paragraph so that you can get a, a good gauge on the context in which the, these words and sentences are, are used. Now, I mentioned last week, if you use the NIV, the NIV does you the favor of printing out the verses in paragraphs. And it indents. So you can see where the paragraph limits are. And in our case, verses 18 and 19 are set off by themselves as a, as a paragraph. But if you're using the King James, it doesn't do that. Every verse looks like it's its own paragraph. So that makes it a lot harder because now you've got to try to figure out by reading it where a new thought has started. Remember, that's what a paragraph is. A paragraph contains a, or at least a paragraph is supposed to contain a new thought. Now, again, because it's been a long time for grammar and we all get bad flashbacks from whatever teacher you had in fourth grade, and you want to forget about that, and maybe you didn't do well in grammar, 
and writing. And so some people, they just remember that at some point you're supposed to invent. So there's just a stream of consciousness going on here. And then they've gone about a page and a half and they go, uh, I, I should start a paragraph. <laughs> and there's no particular rhyme or reason to it. But a paragraph is supposed to have rhyme or reason to it. It's supposed to begin a new thought. Now, the NIV does you the favor of identifying that for you. So under that point A, just as words are logically arranged to form sentences, sentences are grouped logically in paragraphs. A paragraph begins a new thought that supports the overall theme of the text in which it's contained. Since the boundaries of a new paragraph can be difficult to define, the following would be helpful. A new verse is not necessarily a new paragraph, and literary type affects paragraph structure. Remember, we said that in the Bible's 66 books, there are different kinds of literature. We're looking at one kind. 1 Corinthians is a letter. So a paragraph in a letter is made in a particular way, but a paragraph in a poem is, is a different way. And again, the NIV lays that out for you. If you go to Psalms in the NIV, it lays out the, it lays out the poems and the songs in paragraphs because of the parallelism. And we say that for you at the bottom of page 9. And then determine the message, then, of the paragraph. All right, here's the paragraph. In our case, it's got two verses and two sentences. What's the new thought? that this paragraph is contributing. What's the message of this particular paragraph? Remember, the message of a given paragraph supports the overall theme of the text in which it's contained. For example, our passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 18, and 19, forms a new thought supporting the author's argument that only understandable words are to be spoken in the church. The paragraph that precedes ours goes from verses 13 to 17. And it gives illustrations of the folly, the foolishness of speaking in unintelligible languages. Verses 18 and 19 contain the author's own practice in order to avoid the error of speaking unintelligible languages in the church. And then the next paragraph, which is verses 20 and 21, offers a direct challenge to the readers to think in a mature fashion on this matter. Once you've defined the content of the paragraphs, it should not be difficult to determine the message of the paragraphs because they're all contributing something to the overall the overall thing. Okay, So we've got verses 18 and 19, and I was simply trying to show you that you look at the paragraph before, verses 13 through 17, the paragraph after, verses 20 and 21, and they're all contributing something to an overall argument that is position that's being laid out. So you study the words sentences, the paragraph that contains the sentences, and now you got the book. The book containing the passage. So how do you how are you going to place all of that in all of this? Here's the recommendation. Read the entire book. Now 1 Corinthians is 16 chapters. And it won't take you very long to read through 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. You can read through that in about 20 minutes. Now, I'm not saying you study it. You're just reading through it. You're just getting an idea of what's happening here. But read the entire book. And it's highly recommended you read the entire book through at one sitting if possible. That will provide an overview of the author's flow of thought and other insights that aid interpretation. 
For example, a reading of 1 Corinthians reveals that the church had a number of problems, of which speaking in tongues was only one. In addition, the book indicates that the root of these problems was pride, resulting in a lack of love for others, chapters 8 through 13. That knowledge will help you reconstruct the situation in Corinth with regard to what's being addressed in chapter 14 on tongues. So you're trying to put your passage and now the overall book. So you read the book. You get an idea of what's going on here in Corinth. Then determine who wrote the book. In most cases, the author is identified in the book or the title of the book, Paul called to be an apostle. It's identified for you. In those cases where it's not identified, a study Bible or commentary. Who do you write to? Who are the recipients? The church at Corinth. Bottom of page 10. And then determine the purpose of the book. So I've got this passage I'm looking at in 1 Corinthians 14. You know, It fits into this. It's in this book. What's this book about? Why was this book written? And that's either going to be stated or implied. The purpose of 1 Corinthians is stated. Bottom of page 10. Very first chapter. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And then you read those opening chapters, and there are quarrels and divisions among the Corinthian church. And they show up in people taking sides under their favorite preacher. So their favorite guy on TV... So some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos, some say I'm of Cephas, others say I'm of Christ. Remember that? They're taking each other to court, chapter 6. So Paul, who wrote the letter, has been told they are not unified. That's one of the reasons for which he wrote the book. But top of page 11, when you come to chapter 7, here's how it starts. Now about the matters you wrote about. So he starts out by saying, let me address these issues that Chloe's household told me. That there are these divisions among you. And he, and he starts to address, he addresses those. But then in chapter 7 he says, now, about the things you wrote about. So apparently he's got two sources of information. People from Chloe's household have told him, we need help and instruction, we're disunified. And some others wrote to him about some other things. Now about those matters. And so I say here, you can see, one can see that Paul had been informed of issues in the church to which he responded with the letter of 1 Corinthians. Apparently, the issue of tongues was one about which he had been informed. He obviously was aware of this church's misuse of the gift. So they had written to him about some things. Uh, that starts in verse chapter 7. Now, about the matters you wrote about, colon. And then chapter 7 is about divorce, marriage, remarriage. So apparently that was something that they were in trouble with. Then chapter 8 starts this way. Now about, notice the same language. Chapter 7, now about the matters you wrote about. And then chapter 8, now about. So it's almost like he's got this list, this bulleted list of things they wrote about. Divorce, marriage, remarriage, check. Covered that. Now chapter 8, now about food, sacrifice to idols. Cold. And he's going to check that off. 
And he goes for, for three chapters about that. You get to chapter 12, and you got the same now about language again. Now about spiritual gifts. So this is a, at least a third bullet that they wrote about. Now about spiritual gifts. What are we supposed to be doing with this? Because we're all doing all sorts of stuff. Help us out with this. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all addressing spiritual gifts. And the chapter we're in, chapter 14, is about spiritual gifts. In particular, one of those, speaking in tongues. All right. So that's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to address the problems that the Corinthians were having, one of which was the exercise of spiritual gifts, and in particular, the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, with all that, word, sentence, paragraph, book, where does that fit into the whole Bible? Where does 1 Corinthians teaching about this issue of tongues fit into the overall Bible? And that's what we mean by study the correlation of the passage. Although the Bible has many human authors and therefore should be interpreted as a human book, it has but one ultimate author. As a result, the Bible does not contradict itself. Its teachings are consistent throughout. This means that the student of the word is free to compare scripture with scripture to develop sound teaching. God has chosen to reveal himself and his plan progressively in scripture. That is, not all at once. So the Bible was written. I kept said this dozens of times in our class. Bibles was written. The Bible's 66 books were written by 40 different authors over a 1,600-year period. So God has not given it, dropped it all at once over 1,600 years. So he's revealed himself, made himself known, and his plan known progressively. Therefore, issues addressed in one portion of the Bible may be helpful background for what's contained in another portion. So study related passages to the one you're considering. Now on page four, we saw that the overall context of the Bible has to do with these two things, content and time. (coughs) That is, if I want to find out where 1 Corinthians fits into the overall uh, teaching of the Bible, I want to know where 1 Corinthians fits in chronologically, time, where it was written and compared to the other stuff. And then I also want to look at the content. Is speaking in tongues, our issue, covered anywhere else? Content and time. So compare the message of related passages. Page 11. Survey the references listed in a Bible dictionary, study Bible, concordance, or commentary. You'll discover any passages that contain information related to your passage. For example, in looking up references to the tongue, an interesting passage in the book of Acts comes to light. So now you find yourself in the book of Acts looking at this issue of tongues. And here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost came, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. From this passage, we learn that speaking in tongues was indeed practiced as languages that were understandable. All right, so that's the content. 
When Acts 2 talks about speaking in tongues, it's saying that those were languages that people understood. But what about the time? Which which happened first? Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 or the writing of 1 Corinthians and the stuff the Corinthians were doing? Which came first? Top of page 12. Compare the time. Consult a study Bible or commentary and you'll see that the events of the book of Acts precede the writing of 1 Corinthians by many years. In the case at hand, the speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost preceded 1 Corinthians by approximately 30 years. Thus, since Acts 2 is the first occasion of speaking in tongues, it defines the purpose rather than 1 Corinthians. So speaking in tongues in the Bible was what you see at Pentecost. That's the first time speaking in tongues had ever occurred in the Bible. And it's languages that people understand. Now, I say there, it defines, that is, Acts 2 defines the purpose for tongues rather than 1 Corinthians. Now, what I mean by that is, rather than the way the Corinthians were doing and that's important, or at least was a, would have been really good for me to know when I was like 15. Because I was in my Pentecostal church. And I hear these people saying, you know, what you guys are doing in your church is wrong. And I'm just going, no, it's not. It can't be. Because 1 Corinthians 14 describes what we do. What we do is in the Bible. So how can it be wrong? Well, here's how. <laughs> Turns out, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 14, is not commending what they're doing. He's actually condemning what they're doing. But, you know, for me as a 15-year-old, all I know is I read 1 Corinthians 14 and I go to church and they're doing this. They line up. We're biblical. So you understand, right, that not everything in the Bible is biblical. I mean, when Satan says, you shall not surely die, not everything in the Bible is true. It's accurate. It's an accurate recording of a lie. (laughs) But the statement is false. And 1 Corinthians 14 is recording Paul having to address and correct what the Corinthians were doing, but that doesn't mean what they were doing was good. And, you know, for my teenage brain, I couldn't get that. So it wasn't 1 Corinthians. I I can't look at 1 Corinthians and just say that's what speaking in tongues is. I look at Acts in the day of Pentecost and I say that's what Acts speaking in tongues is supposed to be. And then there's what these guys are doing decades later. Now, the study of 1 Corinthians 14 has broadened now to include Acts 2. And the serious student could, if you wanted, you could go further by applying the same rules to the Acts passage as those we used in 1 Corinthians. So now you say, hey, I'm in Acts 2. Let me figure out some of this. What is Pentecost? Where is Jerusalem in relation to Corinth? Why were they gathered in Jerusalem to begin with? And so on. All right. And then you apply related teaching. And let me finish this. And if you need to go... I've got one minute left, but if you need to go get your kids or something, or you just you just want to go, 
And you don't have to identify which it is. So apply related teaching. Develop principles then from the passage. As noted above, the events of Acts precede the writing of 1 Corinthians. Further, study of the phenomenon of speaking in tongues would reveal that Acts 2 is the first recorded occurrence of speaking in tongues in the Word of God. Therefore, the original purpose for tongues is clearly set forth in Acts 2 to communicate a message to others in their own language. By the time 1 Corinthians was written, the practice had apparently degenerated to the point that unintelligible speech was considered to be a gift from God. Do you remember the larger context? Chapter 13 starts out, the love chapter. But remember how it starts out? If I speak with the tongues of what? Angels. So I suggest to you that that's addressing something they were doing. We've got this heavenly thing we do. But if I speak with the tongues of angels and I have not love, in the context that is, if I don't do it for the benefit of other people, and if they can't understand what you're doing, it's not for their benefit. So even if I speak with the tongues of angels, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Okay. All right. Um, so it had degenerated to the point that unintelligible speech was considered to be a gift. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth sought to correct this and other errors. The teaching of 1 Corinthians 14 on tongues is consistent with the original purpose in Acts 2. That's why only words that, quote, instruct others are deemed by Paul to be appropriate for a church service. Thus, the principle of edifying or building up others is taught in this passage in 1 Corinthians 14. So apply, then, these principles to yourself personally. Activity which directly builds up or facilitates the building up of others is to be our primary concern in the church. Preaching, teaching, singing, all of it is to be done for the edification of others, not self-glorification. For those directly involved in those kinds of ministries, the application is obvious. For those indirectly involved, ushers, nursery workers, custodians, the principle teaches that these labors are valuable to the extent that they facilitate the building up of others in the church. And that's what 1 Corinthians 14 is all about. Whatever you do and however you use, whatever gifts you have, those gifts are to be used for the purpose of building up, edifying other people. And when you speak in language that nobody understands, you're not doing that. And this is not, then, the purpose for which God gave God gave the gift. All right? Now, next week, we don't meet. So we'll meet in two weeks, um, and uh, we'll go to the third tab in our notebook, third and final tab. So no meeting next week, and then four weeks in April. Okay? Thanks.